What does it mean to be the friend of God? All of us have friendships. We have friends in general. We have friends that we are close to. The Bible, in the Bible, the word friend is found 99 times. That's pretty interesting. 99 times the word friend is found, and associated with that is the word companion. The psalmist talked about being a companion of those who do right and obey the law of God. Companion is someone you're close to. And we read about an interesting subject here. We read about being the friend of God. Abraham here, who's mentioned in James chapter 2, is called, is, we know as the founder and the father of the Hebrew race. God called him out of a land and nation of paganism and called him out to be the start of the, of the Hebrew race. God promised him a son in his old age. God promised him soil. God promised him the land that, that uh, Israel will, will accomplish and, and achieve one day during the millennium. And he promised them, he promised them succession. He promised them a large race of people. But the most interesting thing of all things I read is how that James, in writing James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, makes reference of, of Abraham as being the friend of God. And three times we find the scriptures make reference to Abraham being the friend of God. Now, I don't know about you, but, but you know, if you, you have the notoriety of being a friend of somebody that's very important, somebody who's very well known, there's a, there's a little bit of prestige and a little bit of just like, wow, that's pretty awesome. I'm his friend. And three times the Bible mentions that Abraham is the friend of God. We read it in Isaiah 41, 8. We see it here in James chapter 2, verse 23. And interestingly, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, in the prayer of Jehoshaphat, when he prayed for God to give deliverance to the, 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 uh, the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem from an attack by the Moabites and Ammonites, he made reference in, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, by saying, Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel? And gave us it to the seed of Abraham. Notice thy friend forever. Now number one this morning. My prayer is that you would be a friend of God. God wants to be your friend. That's pretty awesome. Amen. I'm talking about the God of the universe. The God of all creation. The God who knows the very number of hairs in your head. He knows the sparrow when it falls. The God who's in control of all things. The God who knows everything. The God who's everywhere at one time. The God who's all-knowing, who's all-powerful, who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He wants to be your friend. Every now and then we'll counsel with a teenager, a college student, or person going through deep sorrow and they'll say something like this, I really don't have any close friends. And I want to encourage you this morning, Jesus Christ wants to be your close friend. He's the friend that sticketh close to the brother. And so we want to see some things this morning about the God who wants to be your friend. What does it mean to be the friend of God? Number one, would you consider with me, number one, the nature of a friend. Now our definition of friendship is pretty loose. It's pretty loose, it's pretty broad. And honestly, I'll just tell you this, I think our definition of friendship is pretty shallow. For us, friendship might represent someone you don't mind hanging out and having a meal with, but you don't want to really spend much more time than that with that person. When we think about friendship, I want you to think of some thoughts I want to give you. A friend is someone you have developed a relationship, listen, of trust, confidence, familiarity, and communion with. Trust, confidence, Familiarity, community. I think probably the best example are strong marriages. Strong marriages are the best of friendships. Some marriages, they can talk. 
forever about things. They just love to talk. In some marriages, there's nobody that perhaps a husband would rather talk to, a wife would rather talk to, than his or her spouse. And that's a good thing. There's familiarity, there's trust, there's confidence, and be able to spend time with that person. A friend is someone you enjoy certain hobbies or avocations with or interests in, in doing. It might be walking together, it might be, it might be golfing together, it might be going to the gun range together, it might be traveling together. It's somebody you enjoy spending time with, it might be fishing together, it might be going to a basketball game together, whatever it might be, you're going to sporting events, it might be something you love doing together. You just love spending time with that person. You have certain things of interest that you really enjoy about. A friend is someone that is a mirror to us. They, a good friend that we trust is a mirror to us. They help us to see the blind spots in our lives that sometimes we can't see. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have blind spots and we need help sometimes from a good friend to help us identify those blind spots so that we're not walking blindly and, and uh, causing confusion or offending other people. I mean, listen, listen to this. A friend is someone who has respect for you does not take advantage of you or exercise liberties towards you that are to his or her advantage. Sometimes people say, well, they used to be my friend. And I would ask, why aren't they your friend anymore? Because they took advantage of you. They never were your friend. A friend is not somebody that you look to see what you can get out of them. A friendship is someone you look to what you can give back to them. I think about the Bible definition from a man who had many friends. In Proverbs 17, 17, Solomon said this, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And that's talking about closest of relationship. I think as Christians, that verse should mean a lot to us. Number one, it has two principles. Number one, as a friend, we're to love at all times. That means it doesn't matter if we've been offended, we've been hurt. If they're truly our friend. <coughs> They're truly our friend. We love them at all times. We love them when they're happy. We love them when they're sad. We love them when they're enjoyable. We love them when they're even annoying. We love them when they beg. We love them when they give. We love them when we give. I mean, we're they, we love at all times. But listen, it draws us even closer. A Christian responsibility it says this, that a brother is born for adversity. That speaks volumes to us. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the, in the Christian family there, the, the family of God, the people of God, we are born to be there in adversity for one another. Hey, thank God for a church when people are down and discouraged for a brother or sister in Christ who's there during your times of adversity. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. Many teenagers and young people and single people struggle with that thought there. Or someone who's gone through a time of grieving, they, they, they struggle with <coughs> the idea. They think, well, I don't have friendships. Well, the Bible says, if you're going to have friends, you have to be friendly. Being friendly means you've got to get out of your shell. That means you've got to be the first to extend your hand. That means you've got to, you've got to be the one that's going to be the first to do the elbow bump. That means you've got to be the one to get out of your, 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 your comfort zone. A man that has friends must show himself friendly. If you're going to have friendships, you're extend that network, you've got to show yourself friendly. How do you do that? Well, remember their name. Dale Carnegie, in his famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I think is a classic that everyone should read, made a basic thought. He said, hey, how to have a friend forever? He says, always remember a person's name. Pastor John Wilkerson, who pastors up at First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana, when he first came to preach for our church back in about 2004, 2005 for a family camp, one of the most amazing things about the man, he could look at you in the eye and hear your name. He remembers your name right off the bat. It was amazing. At the end of the week, everybody at the camp from our church, he remembered their names. He was a school teacher, and he practiced very diligently about remembering people's names. And I think one of the hallmarks about him of having a great pastor's heart that he has is that he remembers people's names. Listen, if you want to be a good friend, you've got to remember people's names. You've got to be, just go up to them and say, hey, just, it's good to see you, and call them by their name. People love to hear their names, believe it or not. 
Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27, verse 9 says, Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart, so is the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Now that's all good stuff, and that's all good counsel, and that's all good studying to understand what it means to be a friend. But let's go a step further, because the context this morning is not to help you to learn how to be a good friend. The context this morning is to help us understand what does it mean to be a friend of God, and if you're not a friend of God, how you can become a friend of God. Now listen with you this morning. Go back to James chapter 2 and look what the Bible says. The Bible says in James chapter 2 verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled. In other words, James is quoting from Genesis chapter 15. He's talking about the faith of this patriarch by the name of Abraham. Now that meant a lot to this uh, audience that James is writing to because as you read James chapter 1 verse 1, he says that James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. His primary emphasis in writing the book of James was to the entire nation of Israel. He speaks to them about the 12 tribes. Now, the significance of that, he's thinking about all of the tribes of Israel. So he's, he's being very homey, if you would, with them. He's being, being down to earth with them. And as he's speaking to them, the name Abraham registered very deep thoughts of sentiment with every Jew because Abraham was considered the father of the Hebrew race. And he makes mention of Abraham here and he says this, Abraham believed God. Now that was important for them to know that. He believed God. What does it mean he believed God? It meant that he put his faith and his trust and the confidence that God was the creator of the universe, that God was in control of all things, that God is the father and light in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning, that God was forever and forever, that God was eternal, that God is omnipotent, that God is everywhere, that God knows all things. But most importantly, he saw God as God who is Savior. A God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And the concept of that was very real and embedded in, in Abraham's heart. Because when he came to believe God, Abraham had offered up in terms of uh, a good faith, if you would. And in terms of just... Uh, forward looking to the death of Jesus Christ. He offered up a bloody sacrifice, the death of an animal on an altar before God. Abraham understood the concept of shed blood for the atonement of sin. And when it says he believed God, it was more than just a head knowledge of God. It was a heart knowledge of God. Listen, Jesus Christ told us himself, you believe in God, and that's good. I'm, I'm going to commend you this morning. If you believe in God, it's good. But believing in God is not enough to be saved. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus Christ said. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who was virgin born, who had no sin, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the sinless Son of God who came to earth for one mission, that was to seek and to save that which is lost, to die for the sins of all of the world, that through His shed blood His death on the cross, that our sins could be paid in full. Listen, the Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, which we'll study tonight in our, in our evening service, and He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Oh, my friend, this morning, I want you to understand, when Abraham believed in God, he looked forward to the future to a greater Son, the the Son known as the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac was a type of the Son, but Isaac was not the Son. The Son was the one who would come, and that was Jesus Christ. The prophesied Son. The one Isaiah spoke of there in Isaiah 9, 6. Unto, a son, unto us a child is born. Unto us a Son is given. When he believed God, he believed God's Word. He believed that he could be saved. And by the way, this morning, you can be saved. 
And the Bible uses a very interesting phrase here in the book of verse 23. And it says, as he believed God. Now, the, the trigger point here is you've got to believe that Jesus is God's son. And you've got to believe that God sent his son to die for your sin. He says, as soon as he did that, God imputed to him righteousness. Now, watch this this morning. He became the friend of God because he understood something. He had to humble himself. Did you ever realize this? Part of friendship is humbling yourself to other people. Friendship is not trying to dominate the relationship. That's not a friendship. That's manipulation. Real friendship means you humble yourself and realize you're, that a true friendship is that you love at all times. You've got to reach out to that person. And you've got to bend over for that person. and You've got to help that person. And you've got to be enduring with that person. You've got to be long-suffering. And that, and that you seeth no evil and you beareth all things. And, and the Bible says here that God looked at him as he believed in God. And Abraham, when he believed in God, he recognized one thing, because he was a 75-year-old man. And I promise you, there's a lot of 75-year-old men that are pretty proud. You get to be 75 years of age, you're old and you're crusty. You're full of pride. You're full of just all these accomplishments you've done in your life. You're Mr. Know-it-all with everything, and you want to impress people with things. But not Abraham. Abraham is knowledgeable as he was about things, and he was a leader in his community. Listen, the Bible says he humbled himself. How do you know that? Because the Bible says that God imputed him for righteous. Listen, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not enough righteousness in any one of us to save our own souls. To be righteous means to be just like God. There's no righteousness in us. So the Bible declares in Romans 3.10, there is none that are righteous. No, not one. Evangelist Glenn Schunk many years ago preached a message to three Catholic nuns. There is none righteous. No, not one. I want to tell you right now, none of us are righteous before God. None of us are right before God. None of us have enough holiness or righteousness in us to be acceptable in God's sight. But thank God this morning, Jesus Christ is righteous. Jesus Christ is the Lord our righteousness. And when he died on the cross for our sins, here's what God did in the transaction. He placed his righteousness on our account and our account was cleared of our sins because God says when he forgives us, there's sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. And when God did that, look at verse 23. He was, it says he was called the friend of God. As a friend of God, that means he had special privileges. He could dine at the table with God. As a friend of God, he had fellowship with God and he walked with our Savior. As a friend of God, he had faith in God and he knew that God, that he was someone God could trust. By the way, that's important. It's important that we trust God, but it's also important that God can trust us. That he trusts us with his word, he trusts us with his gospel, he trusts us with responsibilities, he trusts us with people, he trusts us with our mission, he trusts us with our finances. Listen, I'm going to encourage you this morning, be a, be a faithful tither, be faithful in your offering, your faith promise, because God has given us resources, he's trusting us to do the right thing. Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends, if you do whatsoever I've commanded you, there's a nature of him, but notice secondly, there's the nobility of a friend. Nobility has a very high-sounding word. It's a very high-sounding word. <clears throat> Nobility speaks about something magnificent, grandeur, imperialism, kingliness. I think of David, one of the hallmarks about David, even before he went officially, was anointed king over Judah and over all Israel. He had the heart of a king. 
And as a good king, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 30, 30, chapter 30, verse 26, even before he became king, that after he had defeated the, 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 the people of Ziglag, the Bible says, when David came to Ziglag, he sent of the spoil to the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Now that's a very significant thought that maybe many times we read that and pass over it. Listen, David was only about 27, 28, 29, and most 30 years of age. He was considered still a young man. He hadn't even entered his prime. But the Bible says he collected all these spoils from the victories he had over the enemies of God. He had all these spoils. He had all this cattle. He had all these riches that he claimed. And listen, the first thing he thought about were the elders of Israel who were his friends. Now, who were the elders? They were men much older than him. Men in their late 40s, men in their early 50s and mid-50s, 60s and 70s. He thought about those men and he said, you know, I'm not going to claim this all to myself. I'm not going to have a selfishness. He said, there's something about being a friend that in your demonstration you've got to be giving. And it should have been those men giving to David because David's victory saved them from attack. But instead, David's giving to them. Listen, when we think about the nobility of a friend, we have a friend in God who's always giving to us. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I want you to understand something this morning. We have a God who's always giving. We have a God who gives generously. We have a God who gives abundantly. We have a God who gives more to us than we'll ever give back to Him. Amen? And every gift that God gives us is perfect. And every gift that God gives us is good. Listen, salvation is a good and perfect gift from God. The word of God that he's given us is a good and perfect gift from God. Even the suffering and trials that you're going through and I may be going through, listen, those are the gifts of God to you and I. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is this gift inside of us. I read about in, in 2 Samuel 15, 37, that David had a friend by the name of Hushai. And the Bible gives significance about the nobility of that friendship. It says that he was Hushai, David's friend. Solomon learned from his father in 1 Kings 4, 5, tells us that he had a friend by the name of Zabud. And Zabud was a man who was King Solomon's friend. I want you to fathom me for just a minute about the nobility of the, being a friend of God. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've accepted as your Savior. Now the Bible says you're a friend of God. But watch this here. When you're a friend of God, do you realize what that means? Do you realize that you're a friend of the God of all creation? Do you realize you're the God who is, the, who is infinite in nature? Do you realize you're, the, you're a friend of the God who is everlasting from everlasting? Do you realize that you're, you're a friend of the God who is light, a God who is love, a God who is life? Do you realize you're a friend of the God who is our Father? You're a friend of the God who so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life? Do you fathom the thought that you are a friend of the God who is the Savior of this world? Did you fathom the thought that you're, you're a friend of the God who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. Listen, this morning, we ought to be excited and thank God that if you're saved, you're a friend of a God who's in control of everything. Oh, listen, our country's greatly in need of God. Our country's in greatly need more than just revival. Listen, we need, we need a revival of righteousness in our, our country because the Bible says, it says righteousness exalts the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I'll tell you this morning, as we go down, we drive down our highways and go to our different places. You go through Silicon Valley, that place of, that place of intellectualism and technology. But listen, technology is elevated above God. And you drive around UC Berkeley, Stanford University, and you go around these hospitals and these places of these centers of excellence. And listen, medicine is exalted above God and the institutions of higher learning are so-called are exalted above God. But I'm going to tell you, they may exalt themselves before God, but God is still on high and God is still higher than them all and God will never leave His throne and God will always be almighty and all-powerful. 
You're a friend of God. You're a friend of the God who is the King eternal, who is immortal, invisible, the only wise God. James chapter 2 again. The highlight, verses 21 to 23, is about the faith of Abraham. The father of Abraham. The friendship of Abraham. What stands out to us is the Bible brings off these pages the, the greatness of the, of, the, of, the, of the faith of Abraham. Listen, he tells in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now, James did not have to elaborate and go into a long detail about what he's talking about there. If you know your Bible, he's talking about Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, just leading up to Genesis 22 and Genesis 21, he's there in the Philistine country, and God had given him some land. And there in Genesis 21, the Bible says as he got all that land, he started to plant some wells, and he planted some wells in this area called Beersheba. And there as he had faith in planting those wells, he was basically saying this, I guess if God has given me this land, I'm going to get my roots settled down deep here. And he says, so I might as well dig some wells so we have some irrigation for our, for our vineyards, and, and I have some irrigation for the groves of trees we're going to plant here. And he says, I'm just planning to stay here long term. I'm going to get my, my roots settled in here deep here. And he dug these wells in anticipation that God was going to continue to supply an abundance of water. And as he did so, God revealed himself to Abraham in a wonderful way. He revealed himself as El Olam, the everlasting God. Listen, Abraham in that moment of time was 130 years old. He had seen much of God's working, but when God came to him as a 130-year-old man and realizing at, 100, at the age of 130 that his days were few in number and that he had a mortality and that it's appointed a man once to die, he knew that his life wasn't going to be very long. But as God God revealed himself to Abraham. He said, God, Abraham, now your life here in, life, in, in, this, in this earth is short, but I want you to know your faith is in a God who's from everlasting to everlasting. God never ages. God never dies. God cannot die because God lives forever and forever and forever. And just as that happened, Abraham's faith was bolstered. At that moment in time, God came to Abraham and gave him a very trying, a very hard, trial. Take thy son, thine only son Isaac. Take him up to Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. Did you ever read that and recognize that Abraham did not, was not reluctant? Abraham did not disagree with God. Abraham did not turn his back on God. Abraham, in full compliance, out of a heart of love, Took his son, made preparations, took two servants with him, and made a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, which, is, which would be the future place of Solomon's temple. And God wanted to find out, now, if you're my friend, do you really love me? And I want you to understand that the faith of Abraham, why he's called the friend of God. Abraham had great faith because, you know, seven, several years before that, back when he was about 75 years of age or so, he put, he believed God and God, God attributed him under righteousness, the Bible says, and when he was about 75 years of age. Now he's about 55 years older. And you understand what it gets like. The older you get in the Christian life and the longer you're around it, and you've read your Bible a few times and you know things, we have a tendency to, have, to know it all and we've been through the experiences. But listen, at 130 years of age, he had never gone through an experience like this. 
And Abraham had not only faith in the fact of the shed blood of a sacrificial lamb. He not only had faith in a, in a God who would send his son to die for his sin. But listen, he saw in Isaac a type of a future son. He saw in Isaac a type of the son, the son of God, who would come to this earth to die for your sins and mine. But his faith was not stopping just there. He had faith, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, he had faith that, he, that God, he accounted it, that God would raise him from the dead. He had faith in a future resurrection. He had faith that other men of his generation did not have. He could look down the pipeline and say, wow, there, there's a someday. What, what's going to happen with Isaac when he comes off that altar is a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen, when we read about Abraham's life, here's how Hebrews 11 sums up the life of Abraham. The Bible says these all died in faith. He finished in faith. He finished with his faith strong. He didn't finish weak. He didn't finish diminishing. He didn't finish weak. He finished strong in faith, trusting God. This is nobility about being a friend of God. When he got saved, he became, as the song we sang earlier, a child of God. Oh, listen, there's the nature of a friend. There's the nobility of a friend. But quickly, would you notice something else that's important? Would you notice number three, the nearness of a friend? <clears throat> a friend, in the truest sense of the word, is a confidant. God gives some significance to this as we, as we look at Moses and the life of Moses. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, face to face as a man speaketh to his friend. I mean, listen, a friendship with God is where, where not only can you confide in God, but God confides in you. God is able to speak to you. He can trust us with truth, and he can trust us with his word, and we can trust us with the ministry. Hey, I want to challenge every young person here today, and every new believer here today, and watching by live stream, that, that maybe you've never dedicated your life to the Lord. Maybe you've never really considered what you're doing. You're just going through the routine of going through school, and getting your accomplishments, and doing the academics, and getting straight A's and beyond all that. And maybe some of you young people, because we've got a lot of talented young people, smart young people, that get better than 4.0 on their, on their, on their report cards, things like that. And those are all great things. And you've got great ideas about going into bioscience and being on the cutting edge of technology and going into computer engineering and going to accounting or whatever it may be, or medicine. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. Would you get a vision for your life and realize what could God do with you as a young person? Could, would you trust God for the next 50 years of your life? Would you trust God that he will not lead you in a bad way, that he'll lead you down the right path, that he's the Lord, your shepherd, and you don't have to want. He'll make you to lie down in green pastures. He'll lead you beside us to water. Would you trust God that God could do something great through your life if you would just exercise some faith and be willing to go to a mission field, be willing to do something great for God, invest your life in people. Listen, we spend all of our time trying to get children to invest their lives and pour themselves into textbooks. What you really need to do as a young person is pour yourself into the lives of other people. God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And listen, Abraham, as we consider that he was a friend of God, he was part of an inner circle of people that God could take his word and speak to him in a very intimate way. Moses speaks of a friend which is as thine own soul in Deuteronomy 13, 6. John, Jesus spoke about the friend of the bridegroom in John 3, 29. I'm talking about friendships that are close. And listen, there's a nearness about being a friend of God. Abraham, everywhere he went, he built an altar. We live by schedules. We have so much structure in our life that we've got to follow exactly that structure. 
But brother and sister Christ, I want you to understand, during Abraham's time, when he stopped at a certain location, when he, the first thing came to his mind was he didn't take care of getting his meal. He didn't take care of popping up his tent. The very first thing he made was an altar before God. He gathered the stones together. And I want you to understand, building an altar was a lot of hard work. And building an altar took time. And building an altar meant that you got to, you have to build it to God's specification. And he got the stones and he got the wood and he built it to specification. Then he had to go get the animal, the, 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 the firstborn animal that we bring as a sacrifice. And he'd offer the sacrifice. And listen, when Abraham came to the place where he worshiped God at the altar, he did not rush to it. He didn't look at his watch or look the sundial and determine what time it was. He took his time. And as that animal was offered and the sweet smell of the fragrance went up to God, Abraham's heart was melting every time because he thought about that relationship with God. He thought about what it meant to be the friend of God. And he was moved to tears and he was moved to passion and he was moved to do something great for God. Hey, there's something we can learn about the worship of Abraham that we need in our modern day worship. Our modern day worship is too synchronized. Our modern day worship is too formalistic. Our, our modern day worship is such that it's got structure to it. Well, we need to get rid of the structure and just realize God wants us to stop, take off our watch and not regard the time and just spend our time there until tears come down our eyes when we realize how good God has been to us. Abraham had such a closeness to God that when he was at a time of deep grief and thoughts and wondering what to do in his life, God said, fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and exceeding great reward. You can come to God at any time. He had a battle with five kings and he heard about these kings that came and they were confederate with one another and they took over the city of Sodom and Gomorrah where his nephew Lot was at. And Abraham quickly had assembled a household of servants, 318 men that he prepared. He gave every man a sword and stealthily they went out at night and they went to battle and they went there and they, they caught the enemy by surprise at night and they rescued Lot and brought all the goods back as bounty. And listen, as he did so, Melchizedek, who was the great high priest at that time that came to him, as Melchizedek came, he acknowledged the Most High God and Abraham gave a tithe to him. By the way, you should be giving your tithe to the Lord. And there, as he acknowledged the Most High God, he says, I give my tithe to El Elyon, the Most High God. Do you understand something? Abraham knew at that moment where there were paganism and his family had a background of worshiping the moon god, Nana. They worshiped the stars. They were sacrificing babies in the fire. He worshiped the true and living God and he said, you are the most high God. There is no God higher than you. Love us and brother and sister in Christ. When you're close to God, you realize the universities and the medicines and doctors and technology and no matter who it is, there's nobody or nothing that's higher than our God. His closeness to God was revealed at a time when he messed up. He received the promise of, in fact, God had cut the covenant with him and given him the promise that, that of, the, of the promised son Isaac. At 85 years of age, God came to him 10 years after the first time, said, I'm going to cut the covenant with you, and he did, and he gave him the promise, and all Abraham had to do is just trust in God, but Sarah decided, you know what, Abraham, we need to help God along the way, our culture allows that we can help God, and we can have a surrogate mother, and he decided to, he listened to his wife's counsel, and through that, they had a son by the name of Ishmael, and Ishmael became the father of the Arabic nations, and he messed up big time, because Ishmael was not meant to be the promised son. God, listen, when God wants to do something for you and I, God doesn't need our help. God needs us to rely on Him. We don't change the script and rewrite and tell God how to get the job done. God tells us how He's going to get the job done. Amen? 
And I'll tell you, Abraham was pretty, he felt pretty moldy. Fourteen years of silence between Genesis 15 and Genesis 16. We get to Genesis 16, he's 99 years of age and Ishmael is now 13 years old. He's a wild teenager, amen? That's what his name means, wild. I think Abraham was at that place where he probably thought, God probably just forgot about me. And God came to him. Did you know how God came to him? God came to him and says, now listen, Abraham, I want to tell you something right now. I am almighty God. And in the Hebrew, it's very, it's very, it's very high sounding. and It's very powerful. He says, I am El Shaddai. I am almighty God. He said, I want you to understand. Yes, you're 86 years of, you're 99 years of age. And yes, your body is dead, is as good as dead. And, he, and, and Sarah now is, is much older. She's not 65 when I first came to you. She is now 90 years of age. And you both feel like I can't do anything, but I want you to know I am almighty God. Listen, when you're a friend of God, God is always powerful and God is almighty and God is there for you no matter what you think the circumstance may be. <laughs> and that day came in Genesis 22 when he sacrificed, when God called him to sacrifice Isaac as a, before, before him on the altar. And Abraham had passed the test and Abraham was just kind of getting off the, you know, the emotional current at that moment because he thought, man, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting God for the biggest thing in my life. And as soon as he did that, God, he said, well, where's the lamb? And he turned and he heard a rustle in the bush and there was a ram caught in the thicket by the bush. And God said, you know what? I'm going to tell you what. I've revealed myself to you as El Elyon, the Most High God. I've revealed myself to you as El Shaddai, Almighty God. I've revealed myself to you as your, your, exceeding, your exceeding great reward is your shield. I've revealed myself to you as El Olam, the everlasting God. But here's the biggest one. He said, he said Abraham, at 130 years of of age, I want you to know I'm Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And listen, that had great significance because Abraham had everything he needed in life. He had the flocks, he had the, he had the servants, he had a household, he had the promised son. But listen, more than anything else, he had to be reminded that God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees and the Lord who provides. You understand this morning there's a nearness. There's a revelation God gives us when we have this nearness and closeness. Do you have a nearness to God? You have such a friendship with God that you can call him at any time. You have such a nearness to God that you can, you can see God's working in your life in a powerful way. You have such a nearness to God that you can be like Abraham, where you can be called a prophet to pray that God could open things up that are otherwise closed. You draw nigh to God as he draws nigh to you. You see the nature of a friend, the nobility of a friend, the nearness from a quickly this morning. Did you notice the narrowness of a friend? Abraham lived in a Society that was entirely pagan. <clears throat> Bible historians tell us that Job may have been a contemporary of Abraham. But I want you to understand that the world that Abraham lived, he was surrounded by pagans. They did not worship God. There was an unbelief towards God. His forefathers were the ones who assembled there at a place called Babel and tried to build what they call a ziggurat or a tower. These ziggurats to try to make their way to God. That's God. That's man always trying to find his way to God. Listen, you don't need to find your way to God. God has come down to find you. And through his altars, through his belief, can I tell you this? The narrowness of being a friend of God, when you are a friend of God, you identify yourself through your narrowness. Your narrowness means you identify with God in your belief, in your baptism, your behavior, and in your business. 
Identification means I have a, not just a relationship with God. You know, a lot of us just tell people, well, you know, I go to church. You know, we, we ought to get a place where we get past being, just telling people we go to church and tell them, listen, I'm a child of the King. I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of Jesus Christ. And he identified with God by belief. Listen, this morning, he identified by belief. He was not ashamed to tell people that he trusted in the shed blood and the eternal death of Christ that died for his sins and the resurrection from the dead. He identified with that belief. He identified in the word of God that was unchanging, that God was true about his word. As a friend of God, you need to identify with belief. You need to identify through baptism. Baptism is when you take that next step after you've been saved and born again that you declare before your brothers and sisters in Christ and before family members and those nearest to you, listen, I'm, I'm not ashamed to tell you that I'm saved. I'm not ashamed to tell you that Jesus Christ is in my heart and I believe in God. Listen, there's something about identification of baptism that signifies that there's been a coming out and that you belong to God and that you're a new creature in Jesus Christ. It's not just going through formality. It's recognizing that you are living for God, that you are separate to God. It's not just going through emotion and you disappear. Here, baptism saying, I'm a child of God and I'm not ashamed to let everybody know about that. We identify ourselves through our behavior, our speech, our commitments. There should be no brainer to unsaved people that you're spending time at church. You to know it's not, you're not, it's not just the church you're devoted to, you're devoted to God and Jesus Christ. Amen. James said when he believed God, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Paul, when he wrote to Philemon, used the phrase, put that on my account, to help us understand the financial ramifications of imputation. You and I, as I said earlier, have no righteousness in ourselves. There's none righteous. We might be self-righteous, but that doesn't qualify with God. Because of that, when Jesus died for our sins, and by faith we humble ourselves, repent of our sins, and call on the Lord to save us, the Bible says he imputes that to our account. In other words, what he does is this. It's like having an outstanding debt that you're unable to pay off. Someone on your behalf pays off that debt. They, they say this, put his debt on my account. I'll assume your financial responsibility. It's like a surety. I'll assume your financial responsibility. And when that happens, when that person agrees to it, you know what happens to your debt? Your debt is paid in full. You owe nothing. And there's a zero balance. I don't know about you. I like zero balances. Amen. I don't want to get a, I don't want to get a, a bill in the thing say you forgot to pay this and now you've got a penalty. No, thank God when Jesus died for our sins and you received by faith, he imputes it to you for right. What happens here? We get righteousness now. Here's what he does. He puts righteousness in our account. There's only one kind of righteousness that a, uh, that a Christian can have and that righteousness is righteousness by faith through Jesus Christ. It's not through Alan Fong. It's not through a church. not through an individual. We must understand that imputation clearly defines for us that Jesus Christ put our sins on his account and he put his account on ours and we have a righteousness which is by faith and God looks at you and I just as if we've never sinned. So when there's a narrowness in our friendship, we've chosen sides with God. Are you on God's side? Are you going the direction God is going or are you going the direction of the world? 
You know, this means you, your focus is on heaven. Narrowness means that you've chosen to live for God. Hey, Abraham was a man, the Bible defines his faith. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Hey, I wonder how many of us this morning are walking by faith and we're looking for that city. We're looking forward to that day and time when the Lord may rapture us up and we may leave this life and God will take us home to be with him. Are you looking for that city whose builder and maker is God? Listen, that building and that city will never decay and that city will never get old and that city will never get outdated because it's a heavenly city that our maker and our creator lives forever and forever. Narrowness means we live by the principle of Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3. Ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. For Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. It's the nature of, of the friend of God. There's the nobility of a friend of God. There's the nearness of a friend of God. There's the narrowness as we close. Would you consider this last thought? There's the necessity of being a friend of God. Now listen to this this morning. This is hard. But you ever think about this? There's nothing neutral about what I'm saying here. There's no middle ground. If we're not the friend of God, we're the enemy of God. We're the enemy of God. By our choice. Because of our sin. You might be the nicest person on earth. You might be the most moral person in attendance and service. But listen this morning. If you're not saved, you're not the friend of God. God wants you to get saved. And I can tell you right now how terrible sinner Abraham was before he got saved because I can go back and tell you from Joshua chapter 24 and I can tell you back there from Genesis chapters 11 and 12 when I look at his forefathers, what kind of practices that Abraham had. He was a bad, bad man. But we have a God who's so holy, he saves bad, bad people. Amen. Jesus said this, greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did. A friend loveth at all times. He's the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. We need God. We need God to be our friend. And we need to be the friend of God. Walter Scrivens was born in Ireland. Very young man. He's probably about 20, 21 years of age. Started courting a young lady. They fell madly in love with each other, both saved and born again. He asked her for her hand in marriage. She accepted they made these grand plans for getting married. The day before their wedding, the worst unimaginable tragedy could happen. His fiance, he was going to get married to the very next day, drowned in a boating accident in a lake. It was hard for him. It'd be hard for you and me. He was heartbroken shattered. His mother was getting older. He needed to take care of her, but instead he said, Mom, you're still in good health. He said, Mom, I need to get away for a little bit. And he moved from Ireland to country Canada. He was grieving. He tried to get out of that shell. 
At the age of 25, he fell in love with a young lady again. Another born-again believer. Over time, God had healed the wounds in his heart. He thought, this is it. They realized that they were madly in love, and he asked her for her hand in marriage, and she said yes. Two weeks before the wedding ceremony, this lady passed away. I mean, you talk about tragedy upon tragedy. Can you imagine that 25 years of age? Two women that he's engaged to, they're both saved. Passing away right before the wedding. That was more than Walter Scrivens could handle. To make matters even more difficult, his mother, who'd been gotten a little older, was having health problems, and she wrote him, and he finally got the, the letter, and she said, Walter, I need you to come back home. And you need to take care of me. Walter was heartbroken and grieving and shattered. He said, Mom, I can't come back right away. He said, just, I'm having a real hard time. But he was torn in his heart because he loved his mother very much. He wanted to care for her. Walter Scrivens was a, a writer, a poet to some degree. He wrote the lyrics to him that we love, that he wanted to send his mother. It was mainly intended for, to help encourage his mother, and he wrote this to him. He said these lyrics, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Can't we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. His deepest moment, his most critical need, when he felt like his world was falling apart, God visited with him and said, Walter, I'm your friend. I'm the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You'll have hurt. You'll have sorrow, but you still have me. Amen? You still have me. And he penned those words, which have meant so much for us. This morning, are you the friend of God? Would you do like Abraham and believe God? so that God can impute it for righteousness, that your sins can be put on Jesus' account, and God looks at you as if you never sinned, and you receive the gift of eternal life. If you're not sure you're saved, we invite you this morning to trust Christ and get saved. Then, Christian friend, do you have that nearness? Have you experienced the nobility? Are you living the narrowness of being a friend of God. I invite you this morning, the whole intent of this is that we draw near to God as He draws near to us. To be called the friend of God, what a privilege. What a privilege. I invite you this morning to get closer to God than you have been. Right where you're at, you can kneel down and spend some time with God. You can come to the old-fashioned altar and spend some time with God. 
Let's stand wherever you're at as we close in prayer. And I'm going to invite you this morning. If you're not sure you're saved, we invite you this morning to call on Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior.